of who exactly was the fifth Beatle has been long disputed. Some say it was Brian Epstein, others that it was George Martin. Well, I'm in Liverpool to hear a little-known but truly remarkable story of one woman who certainly has more of a claim to that title than most. Frida Kelly was the Beatles' first and only secretary, working for the group for 11 years. But she's rarely spoken about this time and the extraordinary part she played in the Fab Four story. It all began one lunchtime in 1961, before Ringo had even joined the band. Frida was part of an audience of just 30 that day at the Cavern Club. Beatles were on stage, and I mean, I'm a 17-year-old girl, and there's three good-looking lads up there. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, I want a bit of this. <laughs> Every time they were on lunch hour in the Cavern, I was there. The Beatles noticed this young and very down-to-earth girl, although Frida's dad took a dim view of them. George dropped me off one night and uh, Dad come down in his pyjamas and grabbed me by the scuff and said, you in and you clear off. <laughs> but Frida wasn't just a fan, she was a fully trained secretary and the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, asked if she would like to come and work for him. Her dad was not keen. What did your dad say? If you take that job, it'll only last a year. So I just looked at him and I went, well, just give me the year. Frida came to work here on Whitechapel. Back then, it was the site of Epstein's North End music stores. Welcome to this week's Winlay with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. This week, the Kickstarter-backed Good Old Frida from 2013. Yeah, a fun film, you know, uh, things I, I didn't know that were fun to learn. Uh, Frida certainly had a lot of stories. She just is reticent to share them. <laughs> she kind of likes to start telling stories and then just sort of, oh, well, I don't want to say any more about that. Right. She has certain principles that she relies on. She does believe in their privacy and the rights to their private lives. And that was probably ingrained in her from the beginning. So she doesn't like to spread a bunch of salacious details. But she does have some fun stories. Frida was far more than a secretary uh, to the Beatles. She was a family member. She's never had the, the same recognition that a number of people within the, the inner circle have had, simply because she never pushed herself, she never wrote a book, she never agreed to do interviews. She's always kept a very, very confidential existence. She is Liverpool to the core. To a point where I could barely understand her accent. Um, my first job was at a firm called Princess. I was in the middle of a typing pool, which is rows of secretaries just typing away. You know, maybe that's the thing about the Beatles is when they stuck with the Liverpool people, they were always good. It's only when they started to go outside of that circle or, or the ones selected to join that circle, the Richard Lesters and such, when they got to the people from New York or from California or from... Texas, it's like, well, okay, maybe you don't quite understand us and the way we do things. The people from Liverpool were fans, people who loved them, and people who came later came to them as some form of business. 
Yeah, it's interesting to watch this film again after recently uh, there's a book from Janice Mitchell, a girl who at the time, the time being 1964, was 17 years old. She was a senior in high school, and she and her friend just decided we're going to move to London and become secretaries for Brian Epstein. (laughs) Right. To show you just sort of what a different world that was, it's like, no one questioned them. They raided their college funds, they got passports, they got on a plane, and they ended up in London. Well, you're assuming no one questioned them. <laughs> there might have been major repercussions at home. <laughs> Eventually, there were. I mean, yeah. the end of the story is that the police were indeed looking for them. So for six weeks or so, they were lost in London with the idea that they were going to just sort of show up and become secretaries for the Beatles. Right. But, you know, eventually the police caught them and tracked them down and forced them back home. And that apparently was not an uncommon story. I mean, there was one particular fan stowed away on a ship from America to Liverpool docks, finished up on our doorstep. Frida had many episodes like that to deal with. In a way, is it that Richard DeLello's story? To a certain extent. December 26, 1963, that was when I first heard I Want to Hold Your Hand when Jerry G was playing it on the radio. And I became instantly transformed into a different girl. I was um, automatically a Beatle maniac. And then my girlfriend and I, teen magazines, you know, everything Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. I read in one of the Beatle magazines that the, uh, the Beatles hung out in Soho in London in clubs. And I said, we got to go. The end of their story is the mayor banned rock and roll in Cleveland because it's like, look what rock and roll is making your sons and daughters go out and do. And it's like, so for a year and a half, rock and roll was banned in Cleveland. Yeah, politics back then. Can you imagine some local mayor going, no more hip hop? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then the other button to that story is that Brian and Paul had actually wanted to go down and see them off. You know, they they learned the story. They, they, They discovered that when these girls got caught and it's like, oh, they came all this way to see us. And I'll bet Frida probably had something to do with that. Right. They were convinced, no, you cannot do this. But, you know, as an adult, when she learned that story, Janice Mitchell was like, what? You mean we could have actually met them? <laughs> that close. It's the real life version of I Want to Hold Your Hand as well, except that they actually got on the plane and actually went and lived in London for. There's lots of those actually stories in the Beatles all the way through, all the way to the story about John and Paul being together when Saturday Night Live offered them to pay them some minuscule amount of money. I mean, to think this like, you mean they actually were in a room together and thought about going down? (laughs) As you know, that's one of my sore points. John says it was that night. Paul says it was a week later. And it makes no sense if it was a week later. And then it's that Paul memory thing. The funny thing about that is that Paul's memory was exactly perfect in that he remembered that as he and Linda left the apartment that night, John was watching the time machine. And, well, they've looked it up. The time machine was on after the night that Lorne Michaels made that offer. So it had to have been that night. So Frida Kelly, the film starts with Frida in in her present day. She is an unextraordinary person from the outside. Yeah, an older woman now, but self-deprecating. Not unextraordinary meant as a negative. She's just, you know, someone you would pass on the street. Right. That's her estimation of herself. You know, she opens up the film basically with, who wants to hear a secretary story? (laughs) I've been a secretary for half a century, 50 years, and that's quite frightening. You know, maybe because she was there, she doesn't quite get how this is actually history these days. And the first part of the film is actually probably the absolutely most interesting, at least to my mind. I was hooked. I just was amazed by everything I saw. I thought, oh, that's it. I'm going to go tomorrow. Well, I think it's put down that they played something silly like 294 times. Out of that, I would say, I probably saw them about 190 times. Well, I would recommend this film 
just from the standpoint of there are some incredible pictures of the cavern. There are enough different pictures that you really get a, a good feeling of what the cavern looked like. Uh, oh, absolutely. So she was one of the cavern regulars. She hung out with the cement mixers, and she actually makes a point of showing in which art she likes to <laughs> sit or stand. Right. <laughs> I never quite realized that there were just a bunch of wooden chairs in the cavern. I, you know, I guess I thought that everyone always stood in that hall in the cavern next to the stage. There was three archways, and in the middle archway was wooden seats, all different types of wooden seats. They went all in rows and all the same. There was a little wooden stage at, at the back, and uh, the Beatles were playing on the stage when I, when I first walked in. I mean, our, our view of what it was like when the Beatles were there, that's the way it would be. But when other people played, it wasn't jam-packed. And, you know, so, yeah, it makes sense that there were chairs in a club. Yeah. Well, especially a lunch club where presumably you were down there to eat. Right. You poured out of the offices, and that was where you went to lunch. And, of course, everybody knew you, you had been in the cavern because the cavern had a very distinctive odor. Right. You couldn't hide it having been there. But I've played enough clubs to know, yes, there is a soupy, multi-faceted smell that exudes from the clubs. Especially at lunchtime in the middle of the day, in the middle of summer. They describe it as being disinfectant, rotten fruit, and sweat all rolled into one. There's a uh, fruit import place across the way. And everybody mentions the fruit smell. So you got to figure it was pretty prominent. If you can manage to get inside the glass case, I'll bet the odor is probably still inside of Paul or John's leather jacket. <laughs> right. Well, that's what the cavern smelled like. Yeah. You know, in the story of Paul tells of coming home from playing the cavern and having to wrench out the sweat from his clothes. Well, that must have been a potent smell. <laughs> Well, especially they would play a lunchtime session, then they would, well, they would play two lunchtime sessions, something which people don't always remember. They did an early and they did a late lunch session. So they actually played much more than 294 times at the Cavern because the, the lunchtime session was actually two sets. Yeah, well, yeah. As we learned from Lewis and the frequently... They would just sort of go off and go into NEMS or, or go to the pictures or something and go back because they had an evening performance. <laughs> they didn't have time to change clothes. So they'd go to NEMS and the girls would go, oh, Beatles are here. <laughs> That's why Brian really knew who these guys were. <laughs> right. It's the lads from the cavern. Okay. Go to the booth in the far back over there. <laughs> And they'd sit there and listen to B-sides and write down the words. Sneaky bastards. And then Frida tells the story that people would hand up requests over to John, and John would just sort of stare back evilly at them until Paul came over and told him what, what was written on it, <laughs> because he wasn't wearing his glasses. Right. Couldn't read it. <laughs> There's a real familial tone to her stories and, and she even says at one point her affection for them changed all the time depending on who did what and one of them would be extra nice to her so he'd be her favorite for a few days and george being very affable and he'd be her favorite for a few days so it changed although she's reluctant to say whether she ever actually went out with any of them <laughs> i think she was very clear did you have any doubt that she did? I think she might have gone out with George. George seemed to have gone out with everybody at one point or another. Yeah. John was married, of course, although that didn't stop him, as we will discover. Right. Paul pretty quickly got into Jane Asher, although that first year he was probably available for dating. And then the other thing is George would have been closer to her age. Yeah. But I have to say that's all speculation. She makes a point of not telling us. Right. And that's right. fine. I mean, you know. But the way she didn't tell us leads me to believe that there's just a few stories there that she's not going to tell. <laughs> she was a cute 17-year-old girl, and she was around. I do have to say, there were times when I really struggled to understand what she was saying. Because she has a really thick Liverpool accent, and it's very fast. Turn on the subtitles. The subtitles are not bad. 
Uh, and she mentions yeah. getting on the phone and calling Garston 6922 to get a hold of Paul. A number which would come up again when George Harrison put it into the lyrics of Miss Odell. Why don't you call me Miss Odell? It's just a little bit weird to think that, yeah, you could just sort of pick up the phone and get a hold of one of them. <laughs> that is the way things are. But I mean, even if you're just like a fan of a local band, typically, I mean, as you know, you don't really give out your phone number, your home phone number or, or your cell number these days. Yeah. But I think as the years have gone on, people get, have gotten more savvy about doing that then it was a much more innocent and i mean she gave out her own address for fan mail at the very beginning and was inundated by letters to the beatles and you know everybody around her was like well that was pretty naive (laughs) don't do that and her dad got on her about that he had to find all the bills and all the regular mail in and amongst all you know this volume of things that came in it started out as just a few sacks and then it eventually became this whole big collection bags and bags of mail i was working for brian epstein doing a normal day job but i also had to do the fan club overnight silly me i gave out my home address as the fan club address the postman knocked on the door and he said to me who gave this address out you've got 200 letters here and i said sorry you know we'll do it again time (laughs) anyway Little did he know, within next few months, the Beatles became more famous, and instead of just 200 letters, they were coming in bundles, and those bundles came in sacks. So the van rolled up. Well, my father wasn't keen on the Beatles anyway, and uh, his own personal mail, you know, your telephone bill, your electricity bill, your gas bill, all in the fan mail. So he just looked at me and said, you've got to put a stop to this. what possessed you to give our home address out? I didn't think at the time, did I? So Bobby Brown is the one who actually started the fan club, and we learned a fair bit about Bobby Brown in Tune In. As Frida puts it, Bobby got a boyfriend, so they went looking for another fan club secretary. Do you know if that's unique? Did all the other bands have fan clubs certainly not the local bands i mean you know there wasn't a jerry and the pacemakers fan club that's what i was asking you know so so that was a part of their story that was unique that that people were like let's have a fan club for these guys you know because that played a big role in the beatles history yeah and what you get out of this you know 1962 early 1963 section is just how charismatic they were as a group they took over Liverpool. Right. The stories that we hear about them coming back from Hamburg and then just being it, that really was probably true. And that grew. I mean, really grew their appreciation within the city. Went from that to this huge civic reception with 200,000 people. You know, once they had really made it internationally, that just had to have been on a personal level, stunning to see the whole city out. Elsie and Harry actually invited her to the civic reception as part of their family. The telling of the story, it becomes clear that Frida became the conduit between the guys who are going all over the world and their families. She was someone that they could count on as being a connection to their families back and forth. Uh, The one person she doesn't mention is George's sister in America. Louise has her own version of what was going on during 1963 and 1964, and Frida doesn't really seem to be a part of that. Right. I don't know if that means that they just had different perspectives on it, or if it's somewhere in between the two versions. Brian has the correspondence with Louise in Illinois, so it's like, oh, okay, you know, maybe it just didn't go through Frida. Louise had been in the United States for some time, hadn't she, at that point? She'd been in the United States for about a year. She uh, had been in North America for four or five years. Right, so Frida probably didn't even know. But she was handling NEM's business as well as Beatles fan club business. And she was going back and forth to the Harrison household. That's a highlight 
for me in this whole story was her relationships with the families. You know, it was closer than a lot of people. Yeah. You know, he, she talks about Jim Mack wanting to turn her into a lady. I, I love that right, story. Right. Teaching her about alcohol, <laughs> you know, and she talks about Mimi. You just kind of watched your P's and Q's around Mimi and her assessment that the Harrisons were the ones that really enjoyed the fame, which is strange because George so much didn't. <laughs> or it was on and off. He certainly came to not enjoy it. Right. But the Harrisons clearly did. For these two or three years that we're talking about, it was just tremendous fun for all of them, I think. The buzz of the fame hadn't worn off on the four. I don't know. It would be interesting to see an interview with Mimi about how she felt about it all. Because it just strikes me that she would think it all a bother. Uh, possibly, but I mean, there are other stories that Mimi actually made some friends with some of the people who had found the, the Mendips address and had written to John there. She actually invited some of them over for tea. So it couldn't have been too bad. You know, I don't mean to paint people in black and white. Of course, there are going to be instances, but in, in the, the the general aspect, she just struck me as being one who perhaps didn't enjoy it as much. I, mean, there, I think there's a story in the Hunter Davies book about her yelling <laughs> at a passing boat, you know, once she moved to the shore. <laughs> and that I could see. Unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of record of Mimi. There's a series of interviews from after John passed. And, yeah. and other than that, there's a radio thing. And I think I've actually heard some of the interviews she did with Hunter Davies. Those came out at one point, but... It's not a big, long series of interviews with Mimi. Right. And I think Hunter Davies also talks about Elsie and Harry Graves, Ringo's parents, were more blown away by it all. They didn't understand it. They didn't really want to be a part of it. They really fought being moved from their old neighborhood. Has Ringo suggested you should stop work as a Liverpool Corporation painter? He certainly has, but I don't want to move. I like my job and I like the people I work with. They've been really wonderful to me. Has Ringo's affluence made any difference to you at all? No, not in a way. I'm, I'm happy for him, like, that uh, what he's doing, like, he's got security for the rest of his life. And we're quite happy about it, the wife and I. Mrs. Bravestock, does Ringo want to move house? I don't really think so. He's asked us to have another house, but we're quite happy. And the neighbours and everybody's very good and proud that the boys have got to where they are. We see both Frida's photos of the house and the house as it looks today, with the V for Victory still over the door. Right. But it's like, wow, this really was just a two-up, two-down. Yeah, and even the street itself, no trees. I mean, it's very tenement looking clean there was a big hole over there where those new houses are that was a big playground for us kids because the the bombs uh, dropped around here and there used to be bomb shelters up and down the street so we could all hide in them and my grandparents lived at the bottom house in the street where we used to go and hide when the, the war was on that was both a part of liverpool that got bombed and it was well the rough neighborhood, yeah. the poor part of town. Right. Something which probably hadn't changed in a hundred years. That's part of the interesting aspect of this film is that you see places like that a little bit deeper than you do in other accounts. Yeah, I wish they'd filmed a little bit more in and around Liverpool. They go back to Frida on her couch a little bit too often, I think. Every other scene is either Frida in her attic or Frida talking, telling her stories, sitting on her couch. Well, I, I would think, you know, in, in the raising of the money for this film, a lot of the footage is, you know, found footage. They couldn't conduct interviews with very many people. And so most of what they have is Frida and her daughter. And Angie. McCartney. Jim Mack's second wife. And Billy Kensley of The Foremost, who is the uncle right. of the director. <laughs> That's the reason why there was a connection. Right. It's a family affair. You know, so when they decided, well, we're going to make a film. Well, we need somebody to make it. Oh, he can make it. <laughs> yeah. 
He has gone on to some success. Ryan White. Your uh, documentary series, The Keepers, is uh, nominated for Best Documentary Series at the Emmys. Uh, first of all, congratulations on that. This was one of his very first films. You know, one of the aspects of this that we missed earlier is that we all kind of know that paperwork around the Beatles was very loose. You know, people would pick up bits and pieces of lyrics. So apparently she had a whole lot of paperwork that was with her. She gave most of it away in the seventies, but she still had four boxes up in her attic of things, cuttings and beetle monthlies and, and also, uh, as we know, she's the one who actually allowed the Christmas album to be made. They didn't have good clean flexies. Frida had clean unplayed flexies that they could then take and make the album master from. Good old Frida. Oh my God, I, I didn't know that. And then Harry stole them and went off to Broad Street Station. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all tying together now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was the deal. They just couldn't find masters. Then that makes some sense, too, because they were recorded at the end of a session. They were cut up and tape was thrown on the floor. Oh, well, we won't use that. Oh, John flubbed that line. And it's amazing how many outtakes we do have. Truly. We're certainly going to have a bash at producing another Smasheroo Christmas record. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Boom, boom, Now, around me, I've got gathered one or two of the boys. And here, first of all, to speak is Ringo. Come over here, Ringo. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, I'd like to thank you all <laughs> for the cards and letters and all the gifts you've sent us and for buying our records and for being just great fans again. Well, that's all from me at the moment. I'll hand you over to George. Hello, everybody. Well, this is our third Christmas record now. And uh, everything else is still nice, isn't it? I'll hand you over to John. <laughs> uh, John. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time since I've spoken to you, and... Uh, that's about all. So Frida's relationship with Brian. That was interesting. Talked about his temper. The, the close group called him Epi. But never to his face. Right. He liked to be called Mr. Brian. And the revelation of his uh, homosexuality was kind of funny because she talks about being completely naive as a young girl. And they were kind of trying to explain it. She's like, what are you talking about? And I remember saying to John, you know what, you know, I don't know what it is about him. I said, I can't put my finger on it. And I know I was rabbiting on for England and John started laughing. And then he went, have you no idea? And I said, no idea about what? Put it to me very innocently. And I always respect him for that. He said, well, let's say this free. If you're on a desert island with him, you'd be safe. And the penny dropped. <laughs> where nowadays it's legal and quite rightly so but in, in those days they had a lot to put up with probably that that had a lot to do with his mood swings as well and trying to keep it from his parents and and other people and she talks a little bit about uh, brian's father daddy happy as they refer to him <laughs> harry yeah and she mentions queenie but really she only talks about queenie in relationship to Brian and the eventual drug overdose. It was the end of a working day and Epi just came in and said, come on, Frida, put your coat on and come to take you somewhere. I had no idea where. And uh, next minute we were at the Empire. And then next minute we were in a box. I'd never been in the box of the Empire. It was this one on the left. He'd managed to get the Beatles a spot. She was just sitting there in a box with Brian at the Liverpool Empire, which was a big deal. Yeah, that was the stage in Liverpool. And the fact that they played it was just amazing to her. And at this point, they weren't even the headliners yet. They were attached to the Little Richard Bill. Right. Her memory was it being a completely dark theater and the spotlight hitting Paul's face as he sang, Till There Was You. <laughs> the whole theater and the stage were in darkness, except for this light shining on Paul's face. And him singing, A Taste of Honey. I don't cry, but my eyes sort of filled up and I just couldn't believe that the Beatles were on the Empire, the biggest theatre in Liverpool, 
And I thought, this is it, they've made it. They're going to be famous one day. Oh, is it Taste of Honey? Close enough. Yeah, it's the yeah, same song. Yeah, it's great. Then we see her going up into the attic, as we mentioned. There's a painting of the cavern, and that's not the Beatles in the painting. That's the big three in that painting. But she likes it because it's really representative of what it was like in the cavern. And she also liked it because it's out from the stage looking out of the crowd. Interesting bit of trivia there more than anything else. 1963, Please Please Me hits number one. And uh, the fan club grows ever larger. Yes. She talks about how Brian gave her this roller, which would do autographs, and she just hated it. Yeah, <laughs> thought it was fake. She also talks about how often and how good they were about signing stuff. She had them doing it all the time. Then the volume got so much, you ended up with a stamp. Do you think they were actually still opening every letter and trying to get everything answered? Uh, well, I don't know when it stopped. They did for a while, clearly. Alan Owen wrote about it in Hard Day's Night. Uh, speaking of which, uh, she tells a lovely tale about Ringo and the fan mail. Shortly after Ringo had joined the band, he came down and was like, you know, Frida, I've got some fan letters at home. Can you help me? He wore her down eventually. And I was like, oh, go on, bring them in. Right. And he had nine letters. And she felt sorry for him. Right. That's like in Hard Day's Night when John hands Ringo a letter. Here, this will keep you busy. Right. Of course, Ringo gets more mail than anybody. In the end, yep. And invitations to gambling clubs. (laughs) Right. And she got a raise around this time, didn't she? Yeah, there was a party. Elsie went up to Brian and said, you don't know what you have in this girl. Right. You're going to give her more money. Everyone had had a fair bit to drink at this point in time. (laughs) That's a charming story. I mean, that illustrates what a a family kind of thing this was. Ringo's mom comes up and says, give this girl a raise. (laughs) And two weeks later, oh, well, we've evaluated your performance. We think you deserve more money. (laughs) Right. But she clearly was proving herself in the job because... Not too much further along, Nems does decide to move to London. Before we move on to London, people would write in and ask for bits of clothes, you know, bits of Paul shirts, and she provided that. She would go around to the house and pick up Paul's discarded clothing, and it's like, he's not going to want this anymore. No, no, go ahead, take it. And she would cut it up and store this stuff in the cupboard, apparently. It's weird you don't see more of that stuff on eBay. (laughs) I don't remember whether it's in the film proper or whether it's in the extended features afterwards. She says they would give her whole ties, and she didn't cut up the ties. She would just send out the ties. Again, where is that stuff now? (laughs) Exactly. Well, it's probably sitting in somebody's scrapbook somewhere. Yeah, you'd think a few of them would survive. Well, whole ties, I mean, some of them, yeah, they probably got worn. Yeah. Until they were no longer, but some of them, I'm sure somebody kept somewhere. Yeah, that would be a good icebreaker. Hey, <laughs> you know this time where Paul McCartney's? It was George Harrison's tie. <laughs> right. She was the one who'd go down to their hairdressers and collect the bits of hair. It was the same barber to cut the hair. It was always this one guy. I mean, it was there. They'd probably do DNA on it now. He would have like a because he thought I was mental. This is Paul's hair, this is George's hair, this is John's hair. Amongst the four boxes that she still has, a little plastic baggie, and there was a note. This is certified to be George Harrison's real hair. <laughs> and that's the stuff she kept. So that's all out there as well. Right. Her favorite story is that someone had sent in a pillowcase asking, can you make sure Ringo sleeps on this? And she did. She found out when Ringo was going to be home. She went over to the house and said, Elsie, can you make sure he sleeps on this? Ringo, you're going to sleep on this. Oh, okay. And from all accounts, he did. And she went and sent it back. Right. You could get yourself into a beetle fest with a George Harrison pillowcase. She's in love with me and I feel fine. Honestly, if I could do it, I would do it. 
Because, you know, I, I was one of them and I was a fan myself. So I knew where they were coming from. Well, the craziness of Beatlemania certainly justified something that was included in this film, which is John's Hitler imitation from the balcony. Yeah, although they don't comment on it. They don't, but but it's definitely there. Yeah, John enjoyed doing that, I think. And Frida is not gentle about John Lennon's shortcomings. She readily admits that while he was, you know, a great guy, a great singer, a charismatic guy, he had his faults and he could get angry at you at the drop of a hat, which is her other big story. The Beatles were the headliners, the Moody's were one of the opening acts. Right. And so she she went backstage and you know everything was going on. She couldn't get to the Beatles dressing room, so she just ducked into the the Moody's dressing room and hung out there for a little bit. I had popped in to see the and I just opened the door slightly, and their band room was just full of relations. So I thought, oh, I'm never going to get in here. So um, I was involved with one of the movies at the time, so I went into their dressing room, which was next door. It was just them, and they had alcohol and drinks, so I decided to stay there for a drink, but probably as I stayed a bit longer than I should have done. And then I realised that I had to get autographs signed, and photograph signs, so anyway, I came back, knocked on the door, and I just walked in. And as I walked in, uh, John said to me, where have you been? And John fired her. <laughs> she turned to the other three, well, do you want to fire me as well? And, and, and they stood with her, so. Yeah, it makes me wonder how serious it was. Any number of things may have been going through John's head at, at the time. And then she also tells the only time that she almost got fired by Epi. We had a new dictaphone, and he gave me this tape to do while he was out. <laughs> and I'd done about two letters, and the tape got stuck. So Neil Aspinall came in I said, oh God, you know, I've got this tape and I've got it stuck, and oh, there's a load of work on it. We pressed, we'd say, the two, two things, and we erased all the work. He came in the office and I just saw John at the back of him and he went down the coach and he said, have you finished the tape? And I just went and I said, no, I'm sorry, no, I've wiped it by mistake. He just looked at me and then shouted, you stupid girl. And John Lennon saved the day because he was behind me and he must have seen how shaken I was and they'd be like about to erupt. He started laughing and going, oh, you know, what have you done, Kelly? And when a beetle laughed, Eppy laughed. But it wasn't a proper laugh. Uh, he wasn't amused at all. And I just remember looking at him and saying, I'll stay late to do it. And he said, I know you will, you definitely stay late until all this work is done. John diffused the situation. Right. Coupled with the other story makes me think that he didn't really fire. It was all a joke. John would say and do things that he didn't mean, and he would change his mind five minutes later. We know all of that. Right. Then they sort of screw around with the chronology a little bit. They dip back and forth through the 60s. Frida tells about a paparazzi shot of her with Paul McCartney, which turned into Frida Kelly is marrying Paul McCartney. I was out with Paul you know, walking somewhere, maybe, you know, he gave me a lift home or, or a, you know, he walked me to the bus stop. Somebody saw us and then it was, you know, I was marrying Paul. And then, you know, they got a quote, well, Paul McCartney is not marrying Frida Kelly. How do you get from A to Z there? You don't, but <laughs> she actually managed to stir up enough of a stink that they had to print a retraction. But the photo they show is a 67-era Magical Mystery Tour photos, and they're talking about this in 64, 65. That's what I say. I, I think she's just kind of telling stories, and they put it here because they thought it flowed best. The editing gets a little weird. And this is where we go into some of the things that we were talking about earlier. She says that the Beatles deserve private lives, and that she wasn't going to 
tell the fans about what relationships were going on, who was seeing who, and it even got to the point that one of her good friends was probably euphemistically going out with John Lennon, as Frida refers to it. Well, John would load her up in the car and take her home, and they would have evenings together. Despite the fact that she knew that John was married at the time, she just said nothing. And this was one of her best friends. As she said, relationships were among the things you did not publicize. That makes sense on a personal level. Frida had this Liverpool trait of loyalty in uh, her love life and, and other people's love lives. Relationships were amongst the top priorities of being personal things that you did not publicize. You certainly did not kiss and tell. That really is probably one of the reasons why she never broke their trust. They were going to keep her around. Right. Because they knew what she wrote in the fan magazines, in Beatles Monthly, you know, what came from the parents and, and what they told her is the version of things that they wanted to get out. Oh, the fans will like that. Oh, Paul is off to Greece. It's like, oh, okay. okay. All right. He's already back from Greece, so it doesn't matter that they know that he had been in Greece for four weeks. Right. It was all show business publicity, and it's all lightweight stuff. And, I mean, some of that stuff in Beatles Monthly. George had a dentist appointment. Well, I mean, right down to you see them reading the story about Paul going on holiday with Hunter Davies and laughing about it and get back. But still, she makes the point that what she wanted to do was, no matter what she was doing for them, no matter what she was writing in the monthly, she wanted it to be correct. Her statement is, I won't deal with you if you're trying to tell lies about my boys. <laughs> my boys. The whole Liverpool crew seems very familial about the Beatles. It, it will be interesting to see in Mal's book how he would refer to them. Yeah, at the very end of my notes, I wrote, this just makes me desire the Mal Evans bio even more. <laughs> and it's coming. It's coming. And, and we are going to uh, have Ken Womack with us again on tape from the fest. He's agreed to, to do a show with us live from the fest. Right. One of the tabloids said, oh, well, you don't have to do anything. You just have to write some words on a piece of paper, slip it under the door, and then you'll have an envelope with some money in it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. Everybody knows what you're talking about, but again, it's down to her integrity. I'm not prepared to sell my soul to the devil for a few pounds, which leads to another story, which is probably a little bit exaggerated. Uh, there were some younger under fan club secretaries i guess working there at nims and and one of them put her sister's hair in there claiming it was george's and it's like i didn't do that well that wasn't my fault <laughs> i've just done a clean sweep didn't just sack the girl that done it i said that's it sorry can't trust you anymore that was the only time I've been sacked. You know, I didn't want to live that day again, that's for sure. You know, it was awful, awful day. That was a matter of honor and trust for her. And this was also tied in with when the Beatles were finally moving down to London. So they were going to be based out of London. The fan club would be based out of London and the fictional Anne Collingham would be created. And Frida would be operating the northern end of the Beatles fan club out of the NEMS office. That, too, shows what kind of a person she was. Her dad, at first, quote, didn't permit it, but, I mean, you know, she was a grown woman and of legal age. She could have done it if she wanted to, but she also recognized that her father was starting to get up there in age. He would need someone around and that she couldn't spend all of her time in London. And so, they, you know, they came to some agreement. She would be working out of Whitechapel, but she would also spend a week, a month in London. Yeah, and it wasn't even some, anything she proposed. I mean, this was completely offered by Brian and the group. I mean, she'd actually handed in her resignation. Yeah. And Brian and the Beatles said, no, we don't want that. This is an aptly titled film, Good Old Frida. She is a person of integrity uh, clearly followed it 
at times against what other people would have been like, you mean I could go to London with the Beatles? <laughs> I'm there. But she stayed to take care of her dad because of family. That same kind of integrity was involved when the Beatles felt like they could trust that she would look after their interests. You compare it to the Janice Mitchell story that we spoke of at the beginning here. It's like, that never would have worked. Even if she had managed to get a hold of Brian, she wasn't that sort of person, obviously. Right. Frida was. There's a reason why Frida was there for the whole extent of the Beatle era. Yeah, she even closed down the Beatles' bunchly. So we're into 67. They invited her down. Frida went on the Magical Mystery Tour. But she was only there for the first week. So she's only in half the film. <laughs> if it were anybody else, they would say, what? You don't want to spend the extra week hanging out with the Beatles? Right. Funny stuff. And then she also tells the fact that she had packed all these wonderful clothes and Mary Quant, which we talked about before, you know, designer stuff. And on the first day, what she wore was just traveling clothes. And then she came down in this stunning outfit on the second day. You need to go change back. It's all supposed to be one day. <laughs> right. Well, maybe that's where Paul got the idea for Broad Street all being one day. Well, Magical Mystery Tour is just one day, and we'll do that again. <laughs> I don't know how to write about night. You couldn't book the hotels in the Beatles' names because they wouldn't have you. So you always had to book them under false names. And Neil was doing some of the hotels, and I said to him, why, why don't you book it in the Women's Institute or the Catholic Women's League or something like that? And he went, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and that Frida had to present herself as the representative from the Women's Catholic League. And then after it's all booked and everything, who shows up? The Beatles. Beatles, Nat Jackley, Auntie Jessie. Right. I didn't know you were Catholic. From the outtakes, but not in the film proper, she talks about her wedding. She got married early in 1968, which was actually a relief to her because she was going back and forth on, should I invite the Beatles to my wedding? Well, if I invite them... I won't be the center of attention. <laughs> right. And so eventually she got lucky because, well, the Beatles were in India at the time. But each one of them sent her a very nice telegram, which is amongst the things she had in those boxes. In her boxes, yeah. The Apple era had started. She says she worked for Apple, but that's kind of left a little ambiguous in the film. She tells the story about the invasion of Alan Klein. Again, in the outtakes, she mentions ringing up Apple, and Klein actually picked up the line himself, and she went, oh, oh sorry, wrong number, <laughs> and put the phone down. Well, there was no caller ID at the time. <laughs> right. Someone from Liverpool was calling the Apple offices. She was married. She started having children. Uh, the Beatles broke up, and it was still her job to say that, well, we're still writing about the Beatles because even though they don't want to be called the Beatles anymore, the four individual members are still signed to Apple Records and we're writing about Apple artists. Okay? It was the truth, but it's funny that she couches it in terms of she felt like she was lying, that she wasn't really telling the truth. You know, there wasn't a Beatles at all. There's a BBC interview with her from sometime in the early 70s, and she seems to look down upon her answers in that interview. Yeah. You know, her statement there is, uh, your life changes and my life had changed. And so we finally get to 1972. She had gotten pregnant. Uh, you know, again, nothing shocking. She's a married woman and she'd gotten pregnant. So and it's got nothing to do with the Beatles, so calm down. She wanted to dedicate her life to being a mother and taking care of family life. Right. I went to London, had a, a discussion with Neil Aspinall, the head of Apple, who was their road manager um, in the beginning, and George and Richie were there. It was just, that was all. Uh, we were just, I remember we were around a table. I told them that I was pregnant, and they said, well, do you think you would be going back to work? And I said, I won't be going back to work. You know, I'll have two children then. She resigned again. And it was apparently George Harrison who finally spoke up and said, uh, Frida, you were there in the beginning. Uh, you're there at the end. Let's call it a day. You know, let's end the fan club. You're still involved in the fan club. While well, I'm sort of trying to wind it up. This is, this is what I wrote. Yeah. It says, well, this is it. 
John, Paul, George and Ringo have each gone their separate ways and they are no longer collectively an item. There it is, 11 years. 11 years in which we have become a very strong, happy and close circle of friends. There will not be another official fan club for the Beatles as individual artists. Please do not write again. Yours faithfully, Frida Kelly. I haven't read that since it went out. I, w I actually felt quite sad reading it. With me being a Beatle fan myself, um, I just knew that this is going to break a lot of girls' hearts. So it must have put a lot of lights out for people. She wrote one final letter, and it's, it's a very tear-jerking letter. You could tell that she was a very much of mixed mind about seeing the end of this thing. I mean, again, and it was her life. This is it. We all know it's done. Let's just call this thing a day. And that was the end of the official Beatles fan club. And that was in 72. She also says that she continued to answer letters for years afterwards. I guess that's right about the time the Apple Studios would close down. Yeah, I guess it was. Three Savile Row was mostly empty by that point. There was still some business going out of there. John had already moved to America. Ringo would have been in and out. George was largely recording at home when he was recording. Right. They had been renting out the studio as a working studio, but I think it was 72 when that all kind of came to a crashing halt. That probably has a lot to do with George you know, saying it's basically all over. And it was in so many areas. As the story goes, George and Ringo wanted to buy Apple. Not so much Apple, the building, but the recording side of the business. It was only when the lawyers told them, uh, you'd be better off just starting your own record label. And thus, Dark Horse was born. Splinter was supposed to be on Apple. That was George's thought. And, you know, George and Ringo wanted to keep going, but it just wasn't in the cards. Right. That takes us to the end of Frida's story, at least for that period of time. She kind of kept quiet from that point, not quite until the film was made. She showed up as Louise Harrison in Backbeat. She plays George's mother in Backbeat, <laughs> which is kind of amusing. Right. Read her name in the monthlies, but I hadn't thought that much about her before this film. That letter was uh, 72, that this is the end. And then she says it was around 74 that she gave all that stuff away. And that's a really short period of time, really, when she just kind of was like, I'm, I'm giving this stuff to the fans. Well, I mean, she mentions that really she answered whatever fan club mail still came in. It took her that long to actually close out the files. Dear Sally, in response to your letter of December the 12th, 1966, my favorite color is blue and my real first name is Richard. Thanks for the snapshot. You're a real cute bird. Love, Ringo. P.S. Forgive the lateness of my reply. Mr. Starr, tea and crumpets. Just said it over there. Sir, if you'll forgive an old brick his impertinence, your devotion to your fans is nothing short of remarkable. Well, Weatherby, they took the time to write me, and I don't care if it takes me another 20 years. I'm going to answer every one of them. I can also see this had been 11 years of her life. While being a mother is certainly fulfilling and the greatest job on the planet, you want to do something else sometimes. And it's like, oh, well, I've got the stack of fan club mail I can answer. <laughs> While the baby's sleeping or, or on Saturdays, like she says, she would just go and answer a handful of letters. You say 74. Maybe it wasn't exactly 74. Maybe it was those two years when she was sort of, oh, well, I've got this and I can send this out. We don't know the exact volume, but there were still... Certainly hundreds to low thousands worth of letters that she had taken with her to go and answer. If it took her two years and she was doing dozens of them a week, like she seemed to imply. Well, that's a principled person. She continued to answer the letters that came in. No obligation to do that, but she did. So the very end is that Frida's role in, in the Beatles story is that she was like the tide. I think that's Billy Kinsley who says that. That you see the effect of the tide, but you don't ever actually see the tide in and of itself. Right. And then upon reflection, that what she did was an unbelievable thing. And it really was kind of an unbelievable thing. I don't know who else would have done what Frida did for the Beatles fan club. Yeah. 
I mean, she was the right person. They were just fortunate enough to pick her up at the right time and have her stick with them for the entirety of that ride. I don't know why Epi picked me. Maybe it was just fate. I was taken along for this 10-year exciting ride and then dropped off on the corner where I started it. You know, I'm not famous, I'm not wealthy. I'm still working for a living. I'm still a Beatle fan. So although there's a 50-year gap since I started it, I still like to think that I'm back where I was in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I like the film. Some great pictures, some good interviews. It's a fan's film. It's not as detailed as I would have liked. And, I mean, in part because she doesn't want to give the details, but the questions could have been directed a bit more towards Frida's story and how Frida related to the Beatles. I mean, you know, it doesn't even really need to have been in this chronological fashion. I would have been happy if, you know, 80% of it were 62, 63, and then Magical Mystery Tour, then you ended up with Little Summer, which is kind of what it is, but they still want to fit it into this, well, here's 1962, here's 1963, here's them getting famous. It's like, oh, okay. That doesn't make it bad, it just makes it a little more haphazard than I would have liked, and, and maybe a little less detailed. And, you know, without prying, I'm sure Mark Lewison spoke with her extensively, for this next volume he, he spoke with her extensively for tune in and we got some really interesting good stuff out of it i hope we get equally good stuff in this next volume mark strikes me as a person who you know knows so much about what went on that he knows what questions to ask without sounding like a goofy fan <laughs> i'm sure his interviews with Frida Kelly were good. Since this film has come out, she has gone on the fan circuit as necessary. I mean, of course, she's well over 80 now, so I don't know how much she still does. She was 70 at the time, and that was 2012. But it's a good film. You, you will learn some things that you probably didn't know, and it's one of the better films that showing you what the lads were like as real human beings. Yeah, I agree. And the sections of, about the cavern, the, the pictures and the stories, you get really close to that story. It matches real well with that whole chapter in Tune In where he talks with all the various girls, the, the cement mixers and the, the various girls which would go down to the cavern. Right. You know, those two pieces together give you a real feel of what early 1962 was like for the Beatles in Liverpool. All right, that is good old Frida. Next week, the fourth disc in the BBC set. Uh, then something else after that. We'll, we'll figure it out. Something new. All right, very good. Uh, talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. time was spent running the Beatles fan club and answering the sackfuls of letters that came in every day. But her contract was nearly terminated when one day she accidentally erased a tape of ideas for new songs, to the horror of Brian Epstein. He'd given me this urgent tape and it was a new dictaphone and I wanted to, you know, bring it to the front and I pressed the wrong button and I erased everything and he went ballistic but then he realised he was with a beetle and John started laughing and saved the day. <laughs> this was no nine-to-five job and soon the Beatles' families were almost like her own. One evening she came round to help with fan mail here at Ringo's house and met his mum, Elsie. 
knocked on the door and she opened the door and I, I just looked and I went, I'm Frida from the office and she went, oh, come in, love, come in. <laughs> Have you had your tea? And I went, no. And she went, do you fancy egg and chips? I went, yeah. I had egg and chips every week for years. Oh, I'm thinking maybe you were, in a way, a link for their families mm. between them and their new world and their old life, in a way. Yeah. yeah. You could share yeah, talk openly. I knew you wouldn't go any further. Yeah. By 1964, the Beatles had the world at their feet and on the 10th of July, they were honoured in a civic reception at the town hall. Frida was at the do. Could you describe that night? It was the sound of the doors of them walking onto the balcony and the force of the noise. It was about 200,000 people. And that's when I realised that they were famous. <laughs> I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 